Welcome to Bethlehem Covenant Church's sermon podcast. We pray that you will be blessed as you listen to this message. Okay, again, good morning. And if you have your Bibles and you would like to follow me along with me here as uh, we go through the scriptures together, please turn over to Acts chapter 5. We are uh, uh, going through uh, this morning, uh, just like this fall season, uh, we're going through the book of Acts together, thinking about what it means to be the people of God. By looking at that early church and how it did things, the passion uh, for Jesus that they had, the sharing of the message, the boldness, um, the love, uh, the Holy Spirit that was working among them. Uh, well, this as we learn this story again, it reminds us, you know, this is us. This is our story. Uh, we are the people of God and the things that he wants to do in us today. You know, and, and, and Acts 5, as we get to that one now today, um, it's a little bit long. And so I don't want to read the whole chapter for us today. I just want to look at two scriptures from Acts 5, two separate stories, one that comes at the beginning of the chapter and then one at the end. Uh, the first story is going to be about sharing and a guy named Barnabas, as well as a couple named Ananias Sapphira. And and one of uh, uh, these people, Barnabas, he he gave all. The others, the couple there, they just pretended to. But their stories, they go together, and we'll see that in just a minute. Um, But then the second scripture that I want to read later on here in our sermon is a great and powerful speech at the end of Acts 5, uh, spoken by a wise old man named Gamaliel, who said something 2,000 years ago in a meeting that still rings so much truth for us today, something that will really encourage us all. And so first, though, let me begin here with this first story of community and how these people shared, and a guy named Barnabas. And and I'm going to begin really back at chapter 4, verse 32. So right at the end of 4, And I'm going to go through chapter 5, verse 11. And so hear what it says. It says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy people among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to anybody who had a need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who the apostles called Barnabas, which means encourager, he sold a field that he owned. He brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. But with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. He brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept some for yourself, this money that you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Well, what made you think to do such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. 
and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said, How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment, she just fell down and died. Then the young men came in and carried her out and buried her next to her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Boy, that must have really shaken up that early church. I mean, for up until that point, the stories are all pretty positive. I mean, lots of people are coming to faith. God is doing all these great miracles. The community seemed like pretty perfect. But then this. God in this moment reveals that he is still holy and he can see true hearts and who is truly his. He can see not just our actions, but he knows when we are being real or when we are not and when we're just trying to look good instead of be good. And so important is being true to God that he immediately deals with this lie. But I want to back up for just a second to the beginning of our reading because I think it's all connected. There is a reason for God's quick and extreme measure here. There is a bigger picture that is being told to us. For in Acts 4.32, it tells us that there was great unity in the church at that time. All the believers were one in heart and mind. And that is such an important verse because this was exactly what Jesus' hope and prayer was, that we would be one. Back in John 17, on the night before the cross, Jesus prayed first that the Son would be glorified, and second, that the Father would protect the disciples from the evil one. Jesus said in John 17, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by your truth, for your word is truth. Jesus prayed that nothing would pull them away or destroy the work that God was going to do through this church. And then the third thing that Jesus prayed on that night, we read in John 17, 21, is that all of those who would believe in their message, that they would be one. Just as the Father was in the Son and the Son was in the Father, so they would be one so that a world might know the truth. Jesus prayed for unity, and he prayed for truth. So important. And for God to be glorified in the oneness of these people's heart, message, and purpose. This was his final prayer before the cross. He knew this would be important and crucial to them staying together and spreading the message and all to all of the world. And so what we're reading here in Acts chapter 5 is a threat to that unity and truth being proclaimed. It may seem to us like just one couple not being totally honest with what they gave. I mean, what's the big deal? But to God, it was a big deal. Kind of like a sweater where you, you pull at one little string, a little tug, and it just keeps unraveling the whole thing. Sometimes it's like this. Sometimes the sin in our life, it doesn't start out big and obvious. It starts out a little tug, a little small thing. 
Something that we maybe even dismiss and think, oh, it's no big deal. No one even saw it. I'll just keep a little bit back for myself. No one has to even know. But that's where it starts. That's often how Satan works with just one little foothold. Just taking just a piece of our heart. Not the whole thing yet. Just casting that little lie that we believe. Just bringing that little bit of division. It starts with a little compromise here, a little lie there, one little small step at a time away from the Lord. And then we start to act the part rather than be the part. And sometimes that's all Satan needs to get in there to begin to destroy a life or a church or anything like that. Something good that God wants to grow. He just begins to pull away at it. And we need to take that seriously in our heart and our life and come back to God being honest fully with him. But I want you to notice again, just at the beginning there, it says in Acts 4.32 that all the believers were one in heart and mind. And because of that, God's grace was powerfully at work among them. It tells us there was great love and generosity in that early church. It says that no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. I mean, this early church truly was like a family. They cared for each other as you would your own mom or dad or kids. I mean, they looked out for each other. It was beautiful. It says in verse 34, there was no needy people among them. Imagine that. Everyone had what they needed. Everyone helped the other. I'll tell you a full truth. As a pastor for the past 25 years, I have seen this to be one of the greatest joys of my life. I have experienced true loving community. I really have. I have seen and experienced myself all that the church can be. All the love and support that flows from the heart of God's people to others who are going through tough stuff. I've even seen that just this week with what's happening in our church. I've seen people care for people in the hardest moments of their life. Whether someone who is sick or dying or when we need help harvesting our field or when we go through a divorce or we have trouble overcoming our addictions or need a good friend just to talk some some square honest truth that is hard to take, but we need them to say it. I've seen that. Or when the person goes through a grief and just needs a hug or is having car problems and needs a ride. I've seen teenagers show up to talk to, to older members of the church and let them know how much they mean to them. I have seen people give sacrificially to other people. I have witnessed in my life true love and the joy of community of sharing our life and doing our life with others. And I think this is exactly how God designed us. We were made to be in relationship with God and other people. We all need other people. And none of us is perfect. This sharing our life has always been a part of what the church is about, what the people of God do. A family that looks out for one another, that truly cares, that really loves, and a love that is described in the Bible. It's not simply looking out for our own interests, but also the needs of others. Sharing is a biblical idea. Sharing is not just a kindergarten lesson. Sharing is a way of life. It's a way of looking at our life differently, of looking at our stuff 
differently. I mean, hear what the scripture says here. It says no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. And that's when God's grace was truly upon them, when they were one, doing life together in Christ. No one said, hey, that's my car. That's my time. That's my money in my bank account. That's my piece of the cake. I earned that. That's my plow. You can't borrow it. No, everything they had was for anyone in need among them. I mean, is that how we do it today? Is that how we look at our life and our stuff as for not just us, for each, but for each other? What would it look like if the people of God returned to these good old days of the early church, to doing life together, to seeing how each of us has been called to each other, and how what we have been given by God is meant to be shared with those in need? Where, if, if we had, you know, space in our house, you know, and someone had nowhere to live, that we would just welcome them to stay with us? What what would that be like if, if we had food at our table and instead of wasting it, we looked and we found the lonely or the hungry to come on in? Or if you had nowhere to go at Christmas, you welcomed someone else to join you. If you had a car and someone else needed a ride, we share. What would it look like if we didn't claim any of our possessions as our own? This is a biblical idea. It is the idea that everything I have has been given me by God. The education, the job, the opportunities I've been blessed to have, the home, the food on my table, the time I've been given, it's all a gift. We have been given by God, and I'm called to use that gift as Jesus would want me to, to be a good steward of my life, to use what I have for his purposes and glory, not my own hoard, not my own excess, but for the good of others. I think of Jesus' parable of the farmer who harvested and he had so much that he had to build another barn to store it for himself. Jesus called that farmer a fool because he couldn't take it with him. He would die before the end of the year and then who was going to get everything that he had stored away? Jesus taught us to spend our life differently than this, to instead trust him for what we need this day and to share, building up our treasures in heaven, not on earth. I think of another parable Jesus told of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. The poor man Lazarus begged outside the rich man's house every day, hungry, just hoping for a little bit of help, even just a bite of what the rich man ate. But the rich man never gave anything, lived his life by himself, only thinking of himself. But when he died, it was kind of like Marley coming to visit Scrooge and warning him of his how he wronged and he spent his life wrong. He should have been more about caring for those in need and sharing with others and noticing the people around him. There used to be an Old Testament law that some uh, uh, of the crop that you grew on your fields, you weren't to harvest, but you were to allow the poor to come and take as much as they needed. Boy, this just seems like it's riddled throughout the Bible. That is how God intended. Not that some would have and others not, but that we would all share and live as one. The early church, they saw their stuff like this. 
They weren't each trying to get ahead or to get rich or build bigger home for themselves or wear nicer clothes than the next guy, but they were living for something more, something better. And they shared everything they had with each other. And there was no needy people among them. And God's grace was alive in that place. In 2 Corinthians 8, it teaches us that when we believers give, you know, we're being most like our Savior Jesus because he gave all. It says the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. The Lord has shared all with us. He has made our needs his very own that we might follow in his steps. Well, our scripture says in here that some richer people, they did this. They sold some of their land. They gave the money to the apostles to help and spread out to the community in need. And it mentions in particular a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas would go on to become a great missionary with Paul. His name means encourager. He uses his wealth here for good, to help people. His possessions, he gave them away. This was his ministry, giving. He's an example of a person who was generous, who helped support that early church and its mission by sharing what he had. But immediately after his story is told, another one is told of Ananias and Sapphira. It says they almost copied that. They too sold a property. But it says for them it was different. They just gave only part of the money to the community and they kept the rest for themselves. Now, every commentary I read said that the sin here, we got to be careful, was not that they kept some of it for themselves. They had every right to do that. It was their money. The issue was their heart and that they lied about it, that they see, made it seem like they gave the whole. Now, why would they do that? Because it wasn't genuine. They sought the praise of men, really, not God. They wanted to be seen as generous rather than be generous. They wanted to be praised like Barnabas. Their giving was a show, not for God's glory or Christ's mission, but for their own benefit. George MacDonald is a pastor, and he said this really cool quote. He said, half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of be what we're not. We want to appear a good person instead of be a good person. We want everyone to notice our good deeds, to see us in church, to give us credit for the big check and look fondly upon our business. On the outside, we appear a good Christian, but on the inside, we're looking out for ourselves. On some degree, we all can do this. There are the times, you know, I want my wife to know when I did a good deed. It's not enough for me just to do a good deed. I want the credit for it. When I vacuum or put away the dishes or not get my way in an argument but let her have hers, you know. Man, I milked that for all it's worth. But in that, what do you see? You see my true sinful greedy heart, not my love, not my sacrifice for Christ, but my selfishness. Is it for Jesus or is it for me? Even our good deeds, you see, can be tainted by our own ego and need for affirmation, not pure worship. Jesus said, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing and how easy our good deeds can become evil deeds. 
The story of Ananias and Sapphira, boy, it shook up that early church because God openly and immediately judged their behavior, their hypocrisy in that moment. He didn't want it to spread. It was like a warning to that early church to be real. You know, the Bible says man looks at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it was like God was saying in those early moments of that church, we're not going to go down this path. This evil is not going to spread in this place. I find it interesting that there are other times in the Bible when God is really direct and immediate with his judgment. Like at the start of the Israelites after Mount Sinai, when they start worshiping a golden calf on the first day, man, God deals with that right away. Or when David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and didn't treat it as holy, but did it his way instead, man, there was consequences. Or Moses not being able to enter the promised land. Or Saul on the battlefield just keeping a little bit for himself when God said no. You know, I notice it's kind of the big moments, you know, turning points where the reminding of God here that he is holy and he sees and he knows the heart and we got to be real. This was a key moment in Acts 5 when it says great fear sees the whole church. I experienced a moment like this in my life. It kind of a, scared me in a good way, but also a sad way. A pastor that I had really looked up to and one that was very successful. I went to his church when I was in college. He was doing so well. So many great things happening at his church and his life. He was a chaplain for the Chicago Bears. Very gifted man and speaker. Well, behind the scenes, he thought he was getting away with it, but he had a secret life. He was having an affair with the secretary, and then it all came to light. And immediately, he lost his job. His family started to fall apart. His kids didn't look at him the same. His wife and him separated. And about six months after, me and a buddy were on an L train going downtown Chicago, and we just happened to see Pastor Carl sitting on that train. And he just looked like a man who had lost everything. I mean, he looked so different from the last time I saw him in his glory on stage there at the church. We went up to him. We talked to him. We even prayed with him at the station. And he was working on things with his family, he told us. And we tried to encourage him. Because we all know that even in our lowest, God can forgive and turn any life around. But we got to repent. But this quick demise of Pastor Carl, seeing him on that train, having lost everything that mattered, man, that was a wake-up call, just kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. It made me pause and remember, hey, what's important? How's my heart? And how I need to check my life and come back fully to Jesus. And I'd really like to challenge us on that. Are you really being real with, with God? I mean, God receives the broken and the sitter, calls them. But the proud or those who are pretending or the hypocrite, man, he calls that out. And so I challenge us to look at our life. Are we wanting to appear good or be good? You know, like Barnabas, will we, will we share our life with other believers and with Christ, give everything that we have? You know, what would it look like if we did that? But the second story I just wanted to read quickly here and mention is just a shorter one, but it's a wise old man named Gamaliel, and he was a Pharisee, and, and I don't have time to read the, the whole thing for us here. I just will summarize in Acts 5, 
is that the apostles, they, they go out and they, they, they start sharing all about Jesus again. And they start doing all these great miracles. And people are coming to faith. And crowds are getting larger. And so the Jewish rulers, what do they do? Well, they arrest these guys again. They throw them into jail again now for the second time. But in Acts 5.19, it says that during the night, and the angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out, rescued them. The angel said, go, stand in the temple, tell the people the full message of this new life. And so the apostles, they do that. At daybreak, they entered the temple, they continued to teach about Jesus. Well, when the Jewish rulers, they woke up that next morning and go outside, what do they see? They see the men that they had arrested the day before and thrown into jail, they're free and they're preaching again in the streets. They went to the jail, they found the doors locked, they found the guard puzzled, like how did this happen? And so then they go over to the apostles and they say, hey, what are you doing? We gave you strict orders not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But Peter responds, he says, we must obey God instead of you. And it says in verse 33, they wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was honored by all of the people there, stood up in the Sanhedrin and he addressed the council. And he said in Acts 5.35 this, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you're about to do. For some time ago, a guy named Thaddeus appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied around him. He was killed, and all his followers dispersed. It all came to nothing. After him, another guy, Judas the Galilean, appeared and led a band of rebels in revolt. But he too was killed, and all his followers scattered. So I advise you in this, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop it. You will only find yourself fighting against God. It says in verse 40 that his speech persuaded them. So they instead just had the apostles flogged and let go. And the apostles left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the Lord. And day after day in the temple and house to house, they never stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. So I end with this, you see. God used that wise old man in that moment to protect the apostles in that early church. And his words are truth. For many people, like he said, have risen up of their own will, claiming to be the Savior and the Messiah. But there was only one. Those people before came, and when they died, their movement amounted to nothing. But Jesus and his disciples were different. Gamaliel said, if it's of human origin, it's going to fail. But if this Jesus is truly the Son of God, and this ministry of the apostles is truly from God, then there's nothing we can do to stop it. We will only find ourselves fighting against God. God. Gamaliel was wise. He knew his people's history. He knew this truth. I mean, the mighty Pharaoh and all of Egypt could not stop the slaves of Egypt because God was fighting for them. He opened up the sea for them and then washed away the enemy. When Joshua walked around the tall walls of Jericho, they were no match for God. The walls came tumbling down. 
when Gideon and, and just a small band of 300 men stood up to the tens of thousands of Midianites who were oppressing them. God's people won because 300 plus God is way more than tens of thousands of armed soldiers. When David stood before Goliath, he said to him, you come before me with sword and spear, but I come before you in the name of the Lord Almighty. God was fighting with him, and the giant had no chance against the small shepherd boy. When Haman plotted and, and Esther and the people prayed, the powers changed hands. Because if God is for us, who can stand against? Well, these rulers they killed Jesus on a cross. And yet the mission doesn't fade. His followers don't run and hide. Even when they get beaten and arrested, they show up the very next day ready to do it all over again. And there are more of them this time. God is opening prison doors. He's healing sick through them. He's speaking with authority through ordinary, uneducated fishermen. You can't stop it. Jesus told Peter this, that upon you I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There is this small church in a town called Janine in the West Bank in Palestine. And in Bible times, it was Samaria. The church is built over the location where Jesus healed ten lepers. And a really nice man pastors that church today. I'm going to put his photo up here on, on your screen. And I should say that I am not standing on anything in this photo. I am actually taller than somebody, believe it or not. I, I loved this guy, especially his height. But this man, he, when we visited there, he spoke to us, uh, and it was important for him to tell us that his church was not just another tourist spot or museum, but ministry continues in that place. And this pastor's a good pastor. He is all in. He knows his town. He knows his neighbors. He even told me exactly there are 73 Christians in our town, but he is working on so many more, and he knows God can do it. He is so like so many other Christians that I have met over the years in the toughest and poorest and most desperate places around the world. I mean, he is all in. He is leading a church that is alive with mission and heart. He's not just looking back at what Jesus did in his hometown long ago, but he and his congregation are looking forward to the lives that Jesus wants to heal today. And they are seeing people come to Christ. They're feeding their needy. They're sharing the gospel with their neighbors. They're worshiping and serving and giving unto the Lord. And that church is alive because Christ is alive in them and still working in his people. This scripture in Acts 5.38 says, if it's of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it's of God, you ain't going to be able to stop it. What wise words from an old man. The church is proof that Jesus is the Christ and that this movement is from God because it continues today, 2,000 years later, and still growing. 
despite all our weaknesses or lack of ability or messing up or lack of resources. Man, if God wants something to happen, it's going to happen. He'll open the prison doors for you. He is God, sovereign and over all. If you're running away, he's going to chase you down. If you're standing up and having to face a giant, don't worry. He's got it. If you got to feed 5,000 and you just got two loaves and five fish, bring it. God will multiply it. Because if this is of God, it can't be stopped. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have a wonderful Sunday. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To stay up to date with all of Bethlehem Covenant Church's information and events, head to bccwaverly.org.